0: Hello and welcome to the Battle Cry podcast with Mark Meckler. Catch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. Go to conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler.
1: common argument we hear, well, you know, don't, we we shouldn't change the Constitution. It's perfect the way it is. We shouldn't amend it, you know, because they don't follow it now. I mean, can you kind of address that common argument that we hear uh, in in many
0: cases? By the way, that is—that's the best question, and I say that with bias because that's the question I asked you when you no. told
2: me about oh, right Well, the uh, the best answer is that the checks and balances of our country are broken if we don't use Article Five. That's that's the simplest answer. It's like having a kid that's 250 years old and you never discipline them. Um, and and so the the only thing that Puts a check on the Supreme Court misinterpreting the Constitution of the United States is this uh, reversing a particular decision of the Supreme Court is incredibly incredibly difficult. Forty-nine years. By the way, it was the year of jubilee. If you if you follow from the date that Roe versus Wade was issued, we were in the year of jubilee when it was reversed. But so that was a that was a great thing. That's one decision. One major, major decision, 49 years. And there are countless areas where the Supreme Court has misinterpreted the Constitution of the United States. The Commerce Clause, the General Welfare Clause, the way treaties work. Treaties should always be ratified by the United States Senate by a two-thirds vote. There are thousands of things called executive agreements that I have an L.L.M. in public international law from the University of London. The definition of a treaty encompasses both what we call treaties and what we call executive agreements. There are treaties every place else in the world, but in the hands of our Supreme Court, they're executive agreements, and they don't have to be ratified by the Senate. All that is nonsense. And the only way we're gonna get a check and balance on the Supreme Court of the United States is to be able to do the systemic changes that are necessary. And uh, there's a lot of other things that that could be done, but we just need to say, no, we need to go back and go back to the original meaning. And we all know that uh, we've had to reverse the Supreme, we had to reverse Dred Scott. Um, That was a decision that basically caused the Civil War. And they were wrong when they decided Dred Scott. They were wrong when they decided Plessy versus Ferguson about 1875 when they said separate but equal is equal. That's nonsense. And that caused basically 100 years of trouble. But the Supreme Court of the United States did that and you know we can talk about marriage. We, can, we need to be able to get checks and balances so the Constitution is back to its original meaning. Now some of the things the founders didn't think about and that is are they going to come up with two classes of treaties and try to pull the wool over our eyes? We may need to dr- address some subjects that they didn't think about. And, the, and Mason, George Mason said it best, if the federal government runs away with its power this is the way to check and balance because they will never ever, 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 ever propose amendments to limit their own power because it takes two-thirds majority to do that in both houses. Maybe you might in, in, a, in a really terrific election, if, the, if you got them to vote on the first day before they you know, got too used to Washington, D.C., you might get a simple majority sometime. But to get two-thirds majority in both houses, reducing their power is never going to happen. And so, this is, the, this is the way to do it. If I can just freelance off, I don't know if you have this written or down or not, but the, the question, that you, the, the argument that usually is bolstering the Runaway Convention is something that also Earl Warren promulgated, excuse me, Warren Burger. Both of them probably agreed that to it, but Warren Burger is the one who promulgated it. I have a hard time distinguishing them in terms of their philosophy or anything. but. Um, Warren Burger as chairman of the the Bicentennial of the Constitution said the Constitution of the United States was illegally adopted, the result of a runaway runaway convention. Now, every published law review article that I could find says the same thing until I wrote one. It was published by the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. It was published about six years ago. And if you want to look it up and read it on the internet, It's called Defying Conventional Wisdom. Just put that name and my name in, it'll come right up on the internet and you can read it for free all by yourself. And uh, share it with anybody you want. The basic thing you need to know about that is who called the convention? And then before you answer that question, you need to ask yourself a behind the scenes question is, well, who had the power to call the convention? The idea that the, the Articles of Confederation Congress had implied power to call a convention when they had no implied power to do anything. And the reason we needed to revise the, the, the system of government under the Articles of Confederation is they could do almost nothing. The country was falling apart. The Articles of Confederation had a lot of good ideas, but it was so limited that they needed to, the founders concluded, we need to fix it. So who called the convention? The answer is the states called the convention. Because they had the residual power to do so as as, uh, states. Now, the argument that the convention was only supposed to consider um, revising the Articles of Confederation and not write a whole new document comes from a resolution passed by the Articles of Confederation Congress. Now, my article gives you a whole bunch of details to show that Congress didn't even think they were calling the convention. They never sent their resolution to the states. If they were going to call the convention, you'd think that they would send the resolution to the states. They didn't. Why? Because they were just passing what the equivalent is of a National Pickle Week resolution. They were, they were giving their opinion on it because the states had already started calling the convention, naming their delegates. Six states had already called the convention and named the delegates. And so the question is, what did the states tell their delegates to do? Ten states said this that they are to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. 10 of the 12 that participated. Now, New York said the same language that Congress said, only render the federal constitution, or only amend the Articles of Confederation. And New York stopped voting when two of their delegates left. Why? Because the state set the parameters for how their delegates voted, and the rule from New York legislature was if all three delegates are not present, New York can't vote. Alexander Hamilton never voted again, he discussed, but because you vote by states and the other two were gone, he just could debate and never could vote. And so, so New York didn't violate its oath and Massachusetts was ambiguous and there was a vote in the Massachusetts Ratification Convention to condemn their delegates for violating their instructions, and that convention in Massachusetts, the year that it was completed, voted overwhelmingly to say no, our delegates did not ratify their, their oath and their directions. So who do you want to believe on who, um, whether the Massachusetts delegates ratify, uh, violated their oath? The people from Massachusetts who were had the, in front of them and had the people in the room or somebody today? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sticking with the history on that. And so did they do what the, the, the convention was supposed to do? They were to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. Now there's a lot more complexity to that, but the, the simple answer is, the states called the convention. They did not say only amend the articles. And they, they exactly followed what each and every state legislature told them to do. They obeyed their instructions. There was no runaway. It's a myth. Now, why do you think the left has pushed this myth for so long? They hate the original intent of the Constitution. And what they argue, law review, Harvard professors, Yale professors say this in black and white. Well, you guys can't call for original meaning of the Constitution. After all, it was produced by a runaway convention, and we just need to take it more loosely and have the living Constitution rather than originalism. Well, they do it because they hate the Constitution of the United States. And I defy anybody on the right who claims they're a constitutionalist and at the same time says, our Constitution was illegally produced by a runaway convention. They are committing defamation against the Constitution of the United States. And if they think it's illegal, why are we fighting to preserve it? They, do, they, they forfeit all right, as far as I'm concerned, to ever take an oath of office to defend the Constitution of the United States if they at the same time say it's illegally adopted. They say that. I think they forfeit any leadership in this country whatsoever. Before you get a question, there's one thing I wanna add,
0: because Mike, this is something you said to me when we were on the phone, and I said, well, they don't follow the Constitution right now. Oh yeah, back to that. Uh, So, yeah, and Mike's answer was paradigm shifting for me. Every conservative you talk to says they don't follow the Constitution, and Mike said, well, it depends on what Constitution you mean. And nobody had ever said anything like that to me, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, well, You're referring to the original Constitution, the one we all know and love, but the Constitution now is the Constitution as interpreted by the United States Supreme Court uh, since ratification. And I have one that sits on my desk. I bought multiple copies now. Now it's over 3,000. Pages long. It weighs over 10 pounds. And he said mostly the government does operate within the bounds of that Constitution. And so this is important to note and important to acknowledge that what we're trying to do is get away from that giant, uh, what we call the Conan, right? The Constitution annotated all these cases and get back to something closer to the original Constitution.
1: Amen. Yes, great. Thank you. Um, So a couple, uh, some questions now from from the audience. Really, really good questions. We'll see if we can get hopefully maybe one for each of you. But Mark, uh, this question is, after 34 states sign on, then what? uh, In this uh, evil and corrupt world, those in power will not give up without a fight. Is COS really a viable and workable solution considering the current state of affairs?
0: Uh, I mean, first of all, I don't ever want to be Pollyanna-ish. This is a war. I mean, this is really serious stuff. And I would say uh, there's going to be, and there is right now, massive organized pushback. And lest you be confused, that pushback's not just gonna come from the left. It is gonna come from the left monolithically. But you're going to see pushback, I believe, we haven't seen it directly yet, but I did in the Tea Party days from the US Chamber of Commerce. They're not gonna like it. The unions aren't gonna like it. Uh, If you go to Washington, D.C., anybody who has a building in Washington, D.C., or big offices in D.C., they're all gonna hate it because they love centralized power. Much easier for them to affect the levers of government if it's all in Washington, D.C. So I expect massive pushback. Uh, The scale we've never seen before. Maybe akin to what you saw, uh, which was the war on President Trump when he got elected, right? So there's just gonna be incredible forces aligned against it. Uh, Are we prepared for that? I would say we are mentally and hopefully spiritually prepared for that. I don't think you can ever be wholly prepared for it because I think what we're going to see is uh, the power of the state come against us, and I've experienced this before in the Tea Party movement. The IRS targeted us. Uh, We see it with a lot of the stuff going on with the January 6th defendants. Uh, We see it with the FBI and what the FBI and the DOJ are doing right now. So I think we're we're gonna have a full blown battle on our hands. But I think this is an important battle. And one of the things I like about the division in the United States right now is the sides are becoming very clear, right? There used to be kind of a blending. Democrats just have a different version for the country. We're in a different time now. You know, when the left says you should kill babies, men can be women, women can be men. There are 957 genders. We should teach kids to be racist. I mean, the divisions are becoming very real and, in my opinion, very clear between what I would describe in America, forces of good and forces of evil. And so that's the battle that we're going to fight. Is it possible to win that battle? My answer to that is, honestly, only God knows. Right? I don't know. And you guys might have heard me tell the story before, but this is what, where I go to in Reliance, is I go to John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, after he was president, ended up serving in the United States Congress for 17 years, kind of a backbencher, and his one cause was abolition. And everybody hated him because all he did was scream and yell about abolition. He didn't want to talk about anything else. They actually called him the hellhound of abolition. I told this story on Tucker, if you guys saw Tucker. And, uh, And basically, he was asked by a journalist why he's doing it. There was zero chance of him passing an abolition bill in Congress at that point. And he said, duty is ours, and the results belong to God. And that's how I feel about what we're doing. I'm in this fight. We're all in this fight. I think you guys are in the fight because we have a duty to fight for the United States of America. And I don't have a duty to win because that's not on me. I couldn't carry that burden on my shoulders. None of us could, and we couldn't collectively. That's in God's purview. But we do have a duty to fight, and I think that there is, we have largely in our society forgotten what the concept of duty means. When you're doing your duty, it often means you're doing something that is not necessarily to your personal benefit, of which you might never personally experience the fruits of your labors. You're doing it for for other people, for bigger purposes. You're doing it for God, for country, for family, for posterity. And so I would just say, can, can we really succeed? My answer is, I don't know, but I'm gonna put everything that I've got into it, and so are millions of others, uh, Americans across the country. Mark Meckler is fighting every day to call the first ever Article Five Convention of States to drain the swamp once and for all. Join Mark and millions of other Americans by signing the official petition at conventionofstates.com slash pod. And now, back to the show.
1: Yeah, the only other one that we hear sometimes, we heard it in the Senate last year, and there's a group of them that are kind of must be trading notes, but, you know, they talk about how, well, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years in the legislature in North Carolina. We can't trust a future legislature. Maybe Michael address that, the concept that, you know, the resolution gets passed in North Carolina, but in 10 years the legislature turns over, maybe we're still not at convention yet, but what's the argument that, explain to people why that that's just not a logical argument to worry about what a future legislature...
2: Well, let's just assume that in 10 years the delegates that are appointed from North Carolina are the same political stripe. As the delegates that we appointed from California today let's just assume that that. okay what happens they go to a convention and they discuss three these three things that's That's all they can talk about and so are are they gonna agree to anything on reducing federal power no are they gonna agree to anything on any of the other subjects no and so they will vote no on everything there's nothing affirmative that they can do they can go and vote no that's the worst that happens now as far as I'm concerned, if we had a convention, I don't think it'll do nothing. But it might just do one thing. Um, I, and if, if we pick, let's just pick one thing I talked about recently, and that is a single subject rule, fairly non-controversial. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, we, we have it in North Carolina. Yeah, 41 states have it in their state constitutions, and if we put that onto the federal government, the the $1.7 bill, $1 billion dollar debacle that we just had in december couldn't happen you couldn't put all that stuff into one, one bill it would be i don't know how many it would be dozens if not hundreds of bills that would be required to pass that passage and they, they just don't have the time or the votes we would reduce the size of the federal government by that one thing and i think that the chances of getting that out by a simple majority vote out of con- uh, at a convention at a convention is pretty doggone good and so um so but we prove that the process works and is safe. That, that's worth so much because then we can build momentum and come back because I guarantee you, we won't get everything we want. Right. We won't get everything. But if we get one thing out and it's safe and effective, then now we can start it and we keep going.
1: What type of Supreme Court challenge can us expect as we get closer to 34 states?
2: Uh, I don't think that there's anything that uh, is likely to come to, to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's just this is so clearly in the text of the Constitution that um, unless somebody does something procedurally wrong, then it's going to be okay. The, the thing that if I was pushing the balanced budget amendment or something like that, which I, you know, I like the idea of a balanced budget amendment, and there's an, another independent effort but the state resolutions don't match each other. And litigation could arise for that uh, uh, approach to say these should not aggregate because they're worded differently. Every state that has passed the COS resolution has in the operative part, you know, the preambles, the whereas and all that, that changes, that doesn't matter. What matters is the operative part of, of the language is identical, and so as long as we stick to that, I think there's nothing that can be litigated that is foreseeable. Now, well, one, one let me just tag on one thing. The most recent Article V litigation in the country is about the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, when Congress tried to fiddle with the, the process in the late 1970s, and it was supposed to have, in fact, the, the resolution that came out of the United States Congress said, that it had to be ratified by the three-fourths of the federal state legislatures within seven years. They got close to the end of the seven years and Congress by a simple majority vote, and Jimmy Carter signed it as, as if he had any authority to sign anything under Article 5, signed uh, a, a bill that said we're extending it three and a half years. I filed the first litigation challenging the constitutionality of that effort. And so uh, some others with more experience, because I was I was 12 in 1970. <laughs> um, and, and so so I, I actually, I'd been out of law school two years. And and so um, we, I was able to dismiss my own case and join, like two weeks later, with a case that was filed by more experienced lawyers in Idaho and Arizona. And we worked together as a team. And we won that litigation. Now, as you probably know, a group of states have tried to re-up that and have tried recently to say, it, it, it never expired and all of that. Every case that's dis- considered this latest application, it, I've been involved in advising all of those, those p- people doing all that litigation, and every round we've won. Why? Because you've got to follow the rules. Congress didn't follow the rules. And so the, all the, the precedent of the Article 5 that's relevant and in this uh, last 100 years is ERA-related stuff and I've done it all uh, or been present when it was all done. And the rules are you follow the rules or you get knocked down on the court. And if, if somebody tried to not follow the rules, I guarantee you I'll file the first litigation. And I'm the most experienced fi- Article 5 litigator in this room and, uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, arguably Mike. in the country. Uh, and so in any event. Um,
0: yeah, and I, I would add, Mike, uh, on, in regard to the law, there's something that there's an area that courts don't want to get involved in, they call them things that are non-justiciable. And basically what you have is, so you, you have something that is in the Constitution, that is designed to allow the states to wire around Congress, and the courts look at that and they say, hey look, that's a political process in the Constitution, that's not for us, that's not a proper role for us. It's not the interpretation of the Constitution. There's nothing to interpret, and so they tend to just stay out of it. And there's been a lot of law around this, a lot of litigation around periphery, around Article Five over the years. That's generally the position that the courts take. It's, it's just non-justiciable. It's just not any of our business. So I don't think the courts are likely to be involved.
2: With one exception. When somebody tries to break the rules of the, of the meeting, right. and uh, the ERA didn't have to say for seven years. It could have said no deadline. And if that had been the case, somebody tried to say, well, it's got to be within certain, court would have said no. But when they broke the rules, breaking the rules is a justiciable question. But anything else, Mark's exactly right.
1: All right, very good. So uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, I've had these comments before. You addressed it a little bit, Mark, at the, at the summit. Uh, this question might be the, the person that I Interacted with prior to him registering for the event, but you know, we get you know, we're a nonpartisan organization. Yeah, um, I mean, the problems in this country are nonpartisan, they're both parties are blamed. But the fact is, we you know, the when you when you go to a legislator, a Democrat, and you talk about being nonpartisan, they go to the website, it's red meat. Oh, yeah. So, talk a little bit about why that's the way it is and, and the rationale and
0: that, that whole topic. Yeah, and this has long been a difficulty for the organization, I would say, since the very beginning. And because the idea is nonpartisan, in the sense that our goal is to take power away from Washington, D.C. And you'll never hear say, take power away from Washington, D.C. and give it to Republicans. <laughs> or take power away from Washington, D.C. and give it to conservatives. Because the truth is, the entire idea is take power from D.C. and give it back to the people in the states. And what that means, in effect, is California can be more liberal. And California wouldn't be subject to things that they consider uh, too conservative, maybe under a Trump or a conservative Supreme Court or a Republican Congress. And so it really is, in that sense, truly a nonpartisan project. But here's also the reality. The project was founded by myself and Mike Ferris. We're conservative guys. Uh, we're both evangelical Christians. I'm an evangelical Christian Jew. Uh, I'm, I'm of the right, I'm, I'm not a Republican in the sense that I haven't been re- registered Republican for a long time, but generally speaking, pretty much always I vote Republican because that's always the lesser of two evils, I find in, in the elections that I face. And then you look at the people who endorse us, and you've got Levin, and you've got Hannity, and you've got Ben Shapiro, and, And you've got all these people who are conservative figures, nationally known, who endorse us. And that's just the reality of who we are. And we could hide that, but that wouldn't be honest. And honestly, anybody would scratch the surface and they'd find us right underneath the surface. So we really are who we are, and we can't run away from that. And then in the end is this. There are so few today, because of the tribalism of the left, so few Democrats that I could get to publicly support us, so, you know, if I could find a, a, like an out Democrat that would say that they would put their endorsement on our Convention of States webpage, I would absolutely do it in a hot minute. I, I'll tell you one brief story to close this out, and I don't want to name his name, <coughs> but there's a very, very well-known legal scholar who is of the left, who is in favor of what we're doing, who will not publicly say so because he says, I would lose half of my support if I did that. And so while we don't intend this to be a partisan issue, the reality is it has become such. And then the last thing I would say is remember every election, and we're essentially running a decade-plus-long presidential election, there's a primary first. And in the primary, what you do is you work to solidify your base. And our base, our easy, low-hanging fruit base, are people who believe like us. They're conservative, originalist, constitutionalist. They stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance. A lot of them pray before a meeting or a meal. And so that's just the natural constituency for Convention of States. So it is strategically wise to go after that constituency as opposed to trying to get a few people on the left or Democrats that we might be able to get to come over and cater to that and thereby lose our main constituency.
1: Well. Folks, I really appreciate it. I want to maybe give a big round of applause to our panelists up here.
0: This has been the podcast version of The Battle Cry with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com pod and become part of the solution that's as big as the
2: problem. Thank you for listening.